I'm Dr. Kristen Marie Coleman, a family medicine physician in Orlando, Florida. The most common side effect of the COVID vaccine is a sore arm at the site of injection. Side effects, if any, should go away in a few days. Other side effects that have been reported are fatigue, flu-like symptoms, headache, and slight fever. These side effects are similar to what we see with other kinds of vaccines and are a sign that your immune system is building protection against the COVID virus. Get vaccine facts. We can do A Studio One World Advantage Network production. KYBN. The time is now. The place is here. We're going to have a little talk. It's just chat with Bree. Right now on KYBN Radio. The views and opinions expressed on this show are those of the host and the host alone and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the KYBN radio network. Due to its content, viewer discretion is advised. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome to Just Chat with Bree. So I know you guys always hear me talk about that I used to work at a penitentiary. I know half of you don't believe me, but I've got proof. Today, we have one of my co-workers from back in the day. He's a bit of a historian, and he is going to talk to us today about some of everything. You guys, welcome Ken LaMaster. Hi, Ken. Good morning. Oh, good morning. Pleasure to be here. How are you today? I am simply awesome. I'm off-site today, so sometimes my background noise isn't going to be what it should be, but we're going to push through it. So there's so many questions and so many things. How about we start off with you just giving a bit of a background on you and and who you are and what you do? Obviously, uh, name's Kenneth M. Lamaster. I spent 32 years in prison on the opposite side of the bars. Started my career at the United States Military Prison at Fort Leavenworth in 1979 as a correctional specialist. Got out of the military after meeting a local girl here in Leavenworth and getting married. I worked for a year at the Kansas State Penitentiary. Then I went to work at the United States Penitentiary at Leavenworth, Kansas, and I worked there from June of 1983 until November of 2010. That's where I accumulated 32 years as a correctional professional. So, and that's where I met your lovely host for this radio program. We worked alongside of each other for quite a while, seen a lot of things that made us go, huh. we're going to discuss those things here today now one of the things a lot of people ask well they ask me so i'm sure they ask you what made you go into a corrections field being a 19 year old and going into the army i had always thought yeah i want to do something law enforcement and joined the army and they said well you know we've got a uh, hold on military police so how'd you like to be a correctional officer so i said well you know it sounds like something that is different, so I'll jump into that. And went through the training. They sent me to Fort Leavenworth. And, you know, the drill sergeants always said, all the way through basic training, you know, you keep screwing up, we're going to send you to Leavenworth. And when I got orders to go to Leavenworth, I didn't think I'd screwed up that bad, but, you know, <laughs> here I am. But I get to Leavenworth, go through the training, and then I get sent to the USDB as a correctional officer. And 26 
days into my career, I get stabbed in the dining room. And I thought, well, you know, I got that out of the way. So I guess I'll stick around for a while and made it a career. And I mean, it's, it's definitely a career that will, you know, as I tell everybody, if you want a career that uh, is different day in and day out and a career that will quite often make you go, huh, really? Well, corrections is for you because it will definitely make you go, huh, really, about two or three times an hour because inmates definitely do the darndest things. And that it does. That it does. You know, now I think a lot of times when I would say that I I was at Leavenworth, a lot of people automatically um, put Leavenworth as the military prison, but I don't think a lot of people realize that there are two one is the disciplinary barracks, which is military, and one is the United States Penitentiary, which is federal. And so do you get that often, or people thinking that you only worked at the military prison? Uh, that is quite often the, the concept of most people. They either think that there's a federal prison and they don't think about the military, or they think about the military and they don't think about the federal. And there is a military prison and there is a federal prison. The military prison is on Fort Leavenworth and currently there is a military prison that is the maximum security prison for the U.S. military and there is a detention center that is a regional detention facility for the military for adjudicated inmates uh, to be held until they're tried. And the current Old, the old United States Penitentiary has been downgraded to a federal correctional institution, but it is still standing, and they're currently in the process of building a new uh, prison on the grounds of the old United States Penitentiary. So uh, I've probably confused your audience a little bit more, but yes, they are two separate institutions, and the uh, 175th anniversary of the military prison is next year, and the 125th anniversary of the federal prison was last year. So there's 50 years difference between the two prisons operating. So, yes, there are two different facilities. Right. With you being um, a bit of a historian, I do remember or recall the military prisoners actually built USP Leavenworth, if that's not correct. When they first established the Free Prisons Act in 1892, in uh, July 1st of 1895, the old military prison on Fort Leavenworth was turned over from the War Department to the Justice Department, and the old military prison became the nation's first United States penitentiary, Leavenworth, Kansas. And the military prisoners that were life became federal inmates, and they actually would march starting in the first weekend after the 4th of July in 1897 and started construction on what is now known as the United States Penitentiary, Leavenworth, Kansas. February of 1904, the first cell house opened up on the current site of the United States Penitentiary, and started housing the first inmates to live inside that penitentiary. 1907, that the facility was returned back to the U.S. military and the War Department, and all of the federal prisoners were brought over 
and put into the United States Penitentiary, and the USDB was reformed. So wow. a little bit of a time frame that uh, the United States Penitentiary was actually operated out of the old military prison. And uh, once again, after a riot in 1931, the military turned the old military prison over to the federal prison system and turned it into the federal prison annex at Fort Leavenworth. And it was actually a drug treatment facility that housed federal prisoners up until the very beginning of World War II. And in 1941, it was returned back to the military, and it housed not only U.S. military prisoners, but it housed POWs as well. Wow. Okay. So two times in the history of the U.S. military prison, it's been turned over to the Department of Justice. Now, before we go to a break, if I recall, somewhere back in the 90s, a lot of the military ended up coming over to USP. They were getting ready to close the old facility, and they wanted to, a lot of the live termers were sent to the U.S. Department of Justice to run out their sentences there. And a lot of times, the life termers were more subjected to parole in the federal system than they were under the UCFJ at the USDB. Uh, different guidelines, but they did have life termers that uh, they weren't going to house in their new facility because their new facility is more like an FCI-level type facility like what we would house our FCI type inmates in and because it has a perimeter a dual perimeter fence around it and their cell houses are set up more like a pod system like you would find in a newer FCI type facility not a max custody facility well look let's stop right there and let's go to a brief break then we're going to come back with more history with Ken yeah that's our title history with Ken (laughs) there you go All right, listeners, we'll be right back. Yeah. Naru Hip learning. Had to make a song for my people out here. Living on these streets. Struggling every day. I see y'all. I'm with y'all. Love y'all. We ain't gonna never forget y'all. Forget y'all. Forget y'all. Forget y'all. Hip learning. California. Let's go. I see the homeless on the street. Pack up blankets and some clothes. Bring them veggies and some fruit to eat. And I wish I could do more than that. I lit this hip hop every day. So I went and made a rap to try to show them that we still care. And yeah, I know it's hard when you living out there under freeways and tents. No money for rent. Home ownership ain't even on your list. Minimum wage is a joke. Some homeless look familiar because they used to be your folks. You can let your voice be heard when you vote. But is that the final solution? I'm thinking, nope. No, nope. we need affordable housing and better paying jobs. Poverty ain't cool. In fact, it's quite hard. Affordable housing. We need to get paid because ain't nobody living off this minimum wage. We need affordable housing and better paying jobs because poverty ain't cool. In fact, Off this minimum wage. There's four vacant houses for every one homeless person in Oakland.
affordable housing and better paying jobs. Cause poverty ain't cool. In fact, it's quite hard. Affordable housing. We need to get paid. Cause can't nobody live off this minimum wage. They telling people get a job when they can make more money on the streets. Ain't that odd? People living in their cars, going to work. When that paycheck come, you feel just like a jerk. Company making millions while the roof is your ceiling. So robbing and stealing become more appealing. Your babies got to eat so many parents, they struggle. All your bills do at the same time, now that's trouble. The system needs a makeover. That's why we out here marching on the streets. And you can call this a takeover. Folks fighting for the right to live. All power to the people. Now tell me who you with. We need affordable housing and better paying jobs. Poverty ain't cool. In fact, it's quite hard. Affordable housing. We need to get paid. Cause ain't nobody living off this minimum wage. We need affordable housing and better paying jobs. Cause poverty ain't cool. In fact, it's quite hard. Affordable housing. We need to get paid. Cause can't nobody live off this minimum wage. After the housing crisis um, and the foreclosure crisis of 2008, many homeowners lost their primary residences, their only residences. And so that allowed speculators and the banks that were bailed out um, by the government at that time to come in and scoop up homes at rock bottom prices. Thought you heard it all. There's more fun, more talk, more music just dead ahead don't you go anywhere because there's more just chat with Bree to come KYBN, the Bay Area's number one broadcasting network. And welcome back to Just Chat with Bree. And today we are talking to my co-worker from back in the day and historian of United States Penitentiary, Leavenworth. So now Ken has not only written some books we're going to talk about, but didn't didn't we have some pretty notorious inmates? Who, who are some of the ones that were there when you were there? I know the most famous one that I know was Peltier. So who were some of the ones that you remember? When I started to work there in 1983, uh, some of the most commonly known inmates that most people would know is uh, Russell Buffalino, the guy that called the hit on Jimmy Hoffa. He was there. Uh, one of the interactions that I had with him was one day I was getting ready to let the inmates out of uh, a cell house for lunch and he was standing there in front of me with all of his cronies uh, Tito Famira and, and several of the guys and I asked him I said so what did you do with Jimmy Hoffa and they looked at me and they was like ah, you can't ask the old man that and I said well a little too late I already asked him and he just kind of stood there and when I rang the unit out for chow he kind of did the old man shuffle you know and he goes walking past me, and as he walks past me, he grabs me by the shirt sleeve, and he grabs me, pulls me over, and he looks me dead square in the eye, and he says, hey, we cremated that SOB alive, and turned around and walked out the cell door, and I said, well, Mr. Salt. <laughs> and, and we had Kirksey Nix there, the guy that was uh, portrayed in the movie uh, Walking Tall, the original with Jodon Baker and uh, the arch enemy of Buford Pusser that was part of the uh, Dixie Mafia that uh, was running the gambling casinos and stuff in 
Tennessee at the time and ultimately wound up getting busted up by Buford Pusser and calling the hit on Buford Pusser that resulted in his wife getting killed at the end of the movie uh, and then Buford Pusser ultimately getting killed uh, later in life. Uh, Christiane David, who was uh, an international uh, drug smuggler, political assassin type individual that uh, had connections that they claimed with the Kennedy assassination all the way through the French connection to different things. Uh, of course, Leonard Peltier was there. Uh, Leonard was said to be uh, a political activist, etc. So on, and uh, it was more hype than anything else because Leonard was no more interested in anything else than uh, Leonard's popularity. He was more self-absorbed than he was anything else. And then uh, later on, as my career went through, we had, of course, all of the high-ranking members of the Nation of Islam, all of the high-ranking members of the Aryan Brotherhood, the BGF, and all of those guys. And then we had the 1994 World Trade Center bombers, Salome, uh, Abdu Halima, part of the Branch Davidians. We had uh, the Ruby Ridge. Uh, conspirators that were there for a short period of time. Uh, Woody Harrelson's dad was there for about 15 minutes, and uh, they decided they didn't want him there that that long and sent him out. Uh, <laughs> uh, we had, uh, of course, we had uh, Clayton Fountain for a short period of time, and uh, Tommy Silverstein there when I first got there, and uh, he made guest appearances in and out over the entire time I was there. Uh, Another guy that made his rounds in and out was Carlos Miguel Lager. Uh He was there. And then one that probably your listeners in San Francisco would highly recognize was Felix Mitchell, the drug kingpin out of uh, San Francisco in the Oakland Bay Area that was uh, ultimately murdered uh, inside a cell house there. The murder that happened to him, the story was always over. Uh, they said that he was murdered over, I think, $7 or $11 worth of fruit and radio. And uh, according to what version you want to hear, uh, it's an unsolved murder from back in the day. But uh, other stories were is that uh, he had gone into the Nation of Islam meeting and disrespected the head of the Nation of Islam and told him that his days of running Leavenworth was over and he was and was going to organize a group and take it over. And, you know, every institution has a hierarchy. The leader of the Nation of Islam, uh, Earl Coleman Bay, was the man that everything went through in Leavenworth at one point or another, and if that's what he did, that was a bad move on his part. So, and Leavenworth, when I was there, when I first got there, it was a rocking and rolling place. Uh, if the inmate population uh, wanted you gone, that's exactly how you wound up. You were gone. I mean, the Aryan nation killed their own president, and it was all about they told the Aryan Nation president that he was supposed to take his fall partner off the count because he had snitched off something and he refused to take his fall partner off the count. They told him, they told his fall partner, hey, we told him he was supposed to take you off the count. If you want to kind of get yourself back in good graces with us, you take him off the count. Well, okay, not a problem. One after one morning uh, during work call, he did just that, hit him in the back of the head with a pipe in the main quarter and commenced to stabbing him 
while his cronies held off the rest of uh, the staff. And when the deed was done, they gave up the knives and gave up peacefully, and that was that. I remember, I don't know if you worked there when uh, we had an officer by the name of Paul Racine. He was in the control center taking over for morning watch to day watch, and he looked down the main quarter and seen all this ruckus going on down the main quarter, and he got on the radio and said, control all radio units, officer needs assistance in the main, in the main quarter. It looks like all effing hell is broke loose. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, and it pretty much basically looked that way. I, I remember so many things that, you know, you, I guess you wonder how we can be normal after that because uh, I, I remember quite a few things that happened. I was okay until it happened, and then it was like, oh, my gosh, this is what I'm getting paid for. But, uh, I, you know, I, a lot of people seem to think that our federal correction centers and the state correction centers are the same, but they're very much different. But if they are very much different, and... One of the things that I tell people about being a correctional officer, it changes you to, it changes your whole perspective in life, but it also changes you as a person. If you're there, whether you're there five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years or whatever, it, it changes you as a human being. And it doesn't make you a cold, callous individual. It makes you cautious. It makes you alert and aware of everything that goes on around you, but it also changes your dynamics as a, as a person. It, it, it doesn't make you cold towards humanity. It, it just, it, it, it's kind of hard to describe because, I mean, you can go through the, the statistics of being a correctional officer for a lifetime in that, you know, we have the highest divorce rate, we have the highest suicide rate, we have usually our 58th birthday is our last because of the stress levels, our health uh, uh, levels are off the charts and bad. Uh, we The alcoholism is, is horrible and one of the things I always tell people about corrections and police officers and law enforcement is it's it's hard to not come away with that. Our PTSD levels are three times that of a combat soldier with multiple deployments because we see things every day that the normal human being cannot conceive. Right, right. You know, a normal police officer gets to a crime scene 95% of the time after the fact. And that's not going to an accident and seeing those things, but they get to a crime scene 95% of the time after the fact. A correctional officer gets to a crime scene as it's occurring. They see the individual being stabbed to death. They, I've seen an individual beat to death with a mop ringer. And, you know, I can tell you that his own mother wouldn't have been able to identify him. And right there, we're going to stop. We'll stop and we're going to go to a break. And then we're going to come right back with more tells of the big house. Because that's what they called it, the big house. So we'll be right back. County Road 233, under my feet. Nothing on this white rock, a little old me. I got two miles till he makes bail. And if I'm right, we're headed straight for hell. Inside my face and he shook me like a rag doll And that sound like a real man I'm 
past ten Another six pack in And I can feel the rumble like the cold black wind He pulls in the drive The gravel flies But he don't know what's waiting here this time Yeah, I'm going home all alone, my shotgun Wait by the door and light a cigarette He wants to fight, well now he's got one And he ain't seen me crazy yet He's like my face and he shook me like a rag doll But that sound like a real man I'm gonna show him what little girls are made of Gunpowder and lead His fist is big but my gun's bigger Welcome back to Just Chat with Brie. And today we have Ken Master with us. He is a former co-worker from my job at the penitentiary that I know you all don't think I did. But, you know, speaking of that, Ken... 
So I remember when I first started, there was probably only maybe 12 females there when we had just started integrating in. There wasn't that many of us, and most of us worked um, on the in the back office, offices. But what a lot of people understand is even a janitor to work in a federal institution, you have to go to training and be totally skilled to do that. You have written books. I would like to know what type of books, what inspired you to write them, and where can people get them? The books that I've written pretty much basically deal with, uh, one is titled The United States Penitentiary Leavenworth, Kansas. It's a pictorial history that I did in 2008. It is released through Arcadia Publishing, and it's available through Arcadia Publishing, Amazon. Uh, it's available through me. Uh, my anybody that would be willing to like to have a personalized autograph copy of it can contact me through my personal email that I will allow you to give out at the end of the show. I always love to uh, interact with all of the folks out there that listen to any of the programs and stuff that I've done. So any questions and anything that anybody would like to know, they can hit me up on my email, and, and I personally respond as fast as I can. I also wrote a book titled Leavenworth 7, and it's through the History Press. It's called Leavenworth 7, The Deadly 1931 Escape, and it's a true-to-life escape that occurred on December 11, 1931, where seven inmates took a warden hostage and went down the front steps of the United States Penitentiary in Leavenworth, Kansas, and affected an escape that only lasted less than eight hours, but it was a predecessor to more infamous escapes, one namely the John Dillinger crew escape out of the Indiana State Prison at Michigan City, the Bonnie and Clyde crew escape out of Eastern Prison in Texas, and another escape from the Kansas State Penitentiary on Memorial Day of 1934. And the individuals that set those escapes in place were Frank Jolly Nash, the infamous gangster who was killed at Union Station in Kansas City, George Machine Gun Kelly, Thomas James Holden, who would become the very first man ever placed on the FBI's 10 most wanted list, and his co-partner that pulled off the Evergreen Park train robbery in Evergreen Park, Illinois, uh, Francis Keating. They all got together, and it's when I first caught on to that escape was during training. Like you said, you all go through, we all go through a massive amount of training through our careers, and when I first went through institution familiarization training, our trainer, Bobby Lawrence, started talking about this escape, and I kind of got interested in it, and I wanted to learn more. I've always been kind of one of these. I, I want to know more about anything I'd learn about that. So I started looking at newspaper articles and started gaining as much information as I could, and I thought, well, you know, I'll contact the FBI and see what they've got, and did a four-year request to the FBI, and I thought, well, you know, the FBI sent me back this letter and said, we're going to, we found the information, we're going to send it to you. And I thought, well, I'll get 10 pages of highly redacted information about this escape. And about two months later, I get 2,500 pages of literally little redacted information. 
of the entire escape of how they actually uh, got the weapons inside the institution, all of the people that were involved inside the institution, all of the people that were involved outside the institution, and where they bought the weapons, where they set up the meetings. Uh, from there, I went through the National Archives in Kansas City, and for those that are listening, uh, the National Archives in Kansas City is the records holder for all of the inmate files and Leavenworth records from the earliest records from 1895 till 65 years from the day previous. Every year they get more records as 65 years progresses forward. Uh, from the federal prison system, and it's just a treasure trove of inmate files from uh, inmates that have been there over the years. Now, the inmates that have been part of Leavenworth history and part of Alcatraz, all of those records are uh, housed at San Bruno uh, National Archives, and then that would include individuals like uh, Robert Stroud, the infamous Birdman of Alcatraz, which was actually the Birdman of Leavenworth. His files are at uh, the National Archives in San Bruno, California, and his files take up eight and a half file cabinets, and they're over 8,000 pages, if you can fathom an inmate having that big a file. But the escape involved an individual warden by the name of Thomas Bruce White, and he was a former Texas Ranger and railroad detective. And there's a forthcoming movie coming out here very shortly called Killers of the Flower Moon based on a book of the same title that uh, Thomas Bruce White was the lead investigator in the Osage Indian murders in the 1920s. And he was the lead investigator that broke the Osage Indian murders case. And when the individuals made their way to Leavenworth, he was actually the warden of Leavenworth and greeted the individuals that he sent to prison on the front steps of the federal prison. And he was actually the warden that was taken hostage and run down the front steps. Wow. Wow. You know, I think sometimes people don't, they think that like a lot of the things that happen are only in the movies and that those type things don't really happen. But we can say that we experienced inmate, at least an inmate escape. Um, we, we experienced a riot. Um, and those things are real. And it's really a life or death situation with some of those. I think the most, the most scariest time for me, and you'll probably laugh, is when I had to escort an inmate to the hospital. I remember one time we had maybe five inmates in one wing, and, you know, you got to have so many officers and a lieutenant with each one. And so it was real crowded in there, and all I kept thinking about was the movies of where one of the nurses wasn't really going to be a nurse, and they were going to try to escape, you know, and people laugh at me when I say that, but that was real possibility back then. You, you go through so many different scenarios in that situation, and 
you you find yourself playing the what if game. What if this happens? What do I do? What if this happens? What do I do? And one of the more infamous individuals that I escorted out of the institution was uh, Robert Bruce Pierce, the head of the organization called The Order that killed the radio disc jockey out in, I think it was Boulder, Colorado. Uh, it was a very anti-Semitic white supremacist group. And I remember him telling me that during the course of the transfer that his group was going to overrun the uh, caravan and don't take it personal uh, when they pulled my cold dead body out of the van that it was just business. When I got in the front seat of the van, I put a round in the 30 caliber carbine that was in the front seat with me and I stuck it up in the screen and I looked at him. I said, well, when anybody tries to overrun this caravan and my warning shot goes through your forehead, don't take it personal. It's just business. Oh, yeah. And the guy, <laughs> and the guy said, and the guy sitting next to him looked at him and says, I think he's, I, I, I think he's serious. Yeah. And, and, and a lot of people will think that that's being cruel. But, you know, when you have somebody convey something along that, towards you and he's looking at you with a cold dead stare and he's conveying that with no pre-thought of anything else but you know he's trying to tell you hey you know what you may die today if i'm going to die today i may not uh, i may take you with me oh yeah oh yeah we're, we're going to go to a brief break and we're going to come back and we're going to give ken talk time Listeners, don't go anywhere. This is good stuff. And at least you know I'm telling you the truth. <laughs> we'll be right back. Thank you. 
sache que cette danse d'une délivrance que je voudrais bien que tu te balances un peu. should just start when I blend in. But is there enough time in the day to keep yourself looking good? Um, of course there is. Lessons. But I am behind in work because I never listen anymore. Girl, you need this. What's this? It's Pucker's Lip Gloss. What's Pucker's? Pucker's Lip Gloss is only the best lip gloss to hit stores. With its different flavours and colours, Pucker's makes it hard for you to be the same as everyone else. Wow, this lip gloss is great. Your Bay Area's best, KYBN. Welcome back to Just Chat with Bree. Today we have Ken Lamaster with us. He has stories. He has experience. He was one of my coworkers at the United States Penitentiary in Leavenworth. There are stories for days, so you know, Ken, we're going to have to have you back because this is good stuff, and no one can tell it except for someone that was there. I mean, you were you were stabbed in a penitentiary. People see this on TV, but. They're like, ah, that doesn't really happen, but it does happen. So this is the segment that I turn over to you. You can talk to the listeners about anything you want. You can share what you want them to know about you. And again, if you want, make sure you give your contact information for your books. So the segment is yours. One of the things that I want to let your listeners know is as a correctional professional, there is a huge difference in the correctional settings of today as opposed to long ago. What you see in the movies and what you see in television is not a reality. Correctional professionals now are far more trained and far more professional than what they ever were in what you see movies and television. In some of the segments, you may take away from what I said as being gruff and being kind of a little bit tight or whatever. 
one of the things uh, coming from a very diverse background that I do, um, what I want to convey here is that prison guards and correctional officers are different people. Prison guards from the past were hired. They were never trained. They were hired for one thing, to watch inmates and dispel punishment as they saw fit. That's what they were there for. Along about the 1920s and 30s, and even earlier into the late 1800s, prison reform started big in the United States. That's why the United States Department of Justice decided to become uh, members of the prison community and started the Free Prisons Act in 1892 and started training correctional officers to become more passive and become professional. They wanted to go towards the more rehabilitative, and rehabilitative is really not the true statement of what how to deal with an inmate. Rehabilitative means that you return something back into its original form. If you're trying to deal with an individual who has grown up in an atmosphere of chaos, mayhem, drugs, sex, violence, etc., rehabilitation, are you really trying to rehabilitate an individual back into that? The true form is habilitate. You're trying to take an individual away from that and habilitate him into something better by programs and different things. You want to treat an inmate as a human being, firm and fair. You don't treat an inmate any different than another inmate. You don't want to treat an inmate any different than a human being. That's what a correctional officer does today. Back in the past, they didn't do that. At the United States Penitentiary at Leavenworth, Kansas, the second warden was a reformer by the name of R.W. McLowry. He brought into correctional settings fingerprinting. He brought in forensic science. The United States Department of Criminal Identification was founded at the United States Department or the United States Penitentiary in Leavenworth, Kansas, and we developed fingerprinting and taught, along with the New York City Police Department, the United States Police Department's and correctional facilities, the art of fingerprinting and criminal identification. We also trained correctional officers all over the United States how to handle inmates and become more habilitative in our techniques. We're the founders of special operations response teams that are used all over the world today. Officers from Leavenworth were present when James Meredith became enrolled at the University of Old Mississippi at Old Miss and put down the riots that occurred on that facility. We have been called upon many times in the past. Correctional officers today have to study interpersonal communications. We have to know how to talk to people. We train in self-defense. We train in first aid, firefighting, a lot of different things. We're not the prison officers. We're not prison guards of the past. We see a lot of things that normal people don't see. And one of the mistakes and one of the things that draw people to prisons, the prisons that are closed that do tours and things, is it's the unknown that the public wants to see. It is the things that they don't get to see. It's always what you don't ever get to see on a normal basis that you want to see. It's what draws you to the movies about prisons. It's what makes you read books about prisons. It's the criminal environment. And I can tell you from my experience that criminals are there for a reason. They're not there for singing too loud in church. And yes, there are people there that are probably 
not supposed to be there, but the vast majority of them are there because they are supposed to be there. And sadly enough, there's going to be people there that never make it out of there. That's just the nature of the beast of what it is. But it's not a correctional officer's job to punish them. It is a correctional officer's job to provide them with everything they need, nothing more, nothing less. If they've got it coming, they get it. If they don't, they don't. And it's the 5% that the news media talks about that are dirty, that help them escape, that become caught up in a game and become co-conspirators that you all hear about that make the other 95% look bad, that are trying to do the job that they have sworn to do on a day-in and day-out basis. They are the hardworking men and women of corrections, and they do a job that is not the best job in the world, but it's a great, rewarding career that, like I said early on, it's a job that'll make you go on a daily basis more than five or six times a day, and it is a job that could go from zero to uh-oh and nothing flat. Your normal day can be turned upside down in a matter of seconds. And um, anybody that would like to ask any type of questions, uh, can email me at my personal email, Kenneth Lamaster. It's K-E-N-N-E-T-H-L-A-M-A-S-T-E-R at yahoo.com. It's all lowercase lettering, one word. I will answer any questions that you want to. Um, we'll be glad to come back anytime Bree would love to have me. She's been a inspiration. Uh, once I found out she was doing her own radio program and have all of you wonderful listeners, uh, it's great to hear from her again. She was a fantastic co-worker, and I'm not exactly sure how long I have left. <laughs> <laughs> well, we are ending. We're getting close to the end, but you are so right. We have to have you back. I thank you so much for all of the information. There's just so much more stuff that we can talk about. So we're going to have to yep. definitely set up a time and, a, and, and have you back again and possibly um, get some questions in from the listeners that they might want to ask. And Please. Um, you can answer those questions, you know. And so, uh, I, gosh, I thank you so much for just sharing um, some of the things that you shared, some of the things I didn't even know. And then some of the things I have experienced um, there with you, I mean, I don't think people realize that our days there, you have no idea what's going to happen. Um, oh, yeah. It, it, it's, like I said, it could go from zero to, uh-oh. <laughs> right, right. It's um, nothing flat. No, and I can remember distinctly a 19-day um, shutdown. I back I can't remember ninety something. Nineteen days we were going on twelve and eighteen hour shifts and man I remember my children leaving notes on my pillow for me because I never saw them. <laughs> I, I I went to work one when the Cubans rioted in Oakdale in Atlanta. I went to work that morning and my next off day was Christmas Day. I slept most of the day and my next off day was the second or third of January. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I had uh, my sal my yearly salary uh, plus overtime from the day that they rioted. From what I'd made at that point, I doubled to the last pay period of the year. Oh yeah. 
Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, the sad thing was I just wanted to sleep. I didn't even really have time to go shop. But <laughs> Yeah, it was just kind of like, and, you know, my wife was working overtime where she worked because they were uh, changing systems. <laughs> and uh, I, I, I dubbed her the uniform fairy because I would go home long enough to shower because I was sleeping at the institution. I'd go home long enough to shower, change uniforms, and my uniforms and everything were set up and ready to go. So I... <laughs> I, yeah. I, oh, yeah. I started leaving her notes saying, thank you, Uniform Fairy. Uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> listeners, that's it for today. I hope you enjoy having Mr. Ken LaMaster come and hang out with us. He's going to come back again soon because he's got lots of historical stuff, good information. Ken, I do invite you back and you have any any parting, anything you want to say as we close off? Well, I thank you for having me, and I look forward to. Uh, I would like, I'd love to do a session with uh, questions and that your listeners have, and uh, I I really like to do that because it's something I haven't done in a long time, and uh, I I actually enjoy that. I really do. So, uh, folks. Send your questions to Bree, and let's get it done. All right. That they will do. All right, listeners, that's it for today. I'll see you again another day. I still remember the time. Outside, watch the stars, waiting for the firefly. Then you softly whisper in my ear, run away with me, my dear. And I would smile, oh, I would smile and say, Take my hand, move closer to me. Darling, when I'm laying here with you, I'm free, oh, I'm free. I still remember when you'd smile every time you heard my name And I would do the same And I'm sorry dear if I seem insincere But there's hope for me if you just hold me near And even when the sun goes down I'll still be there for you when your smile becomes a frown When your smile becomes a frown We would lay outside, watch the stars, waiting for the fireflies. Then you softly whisper in my ear, run away with me, my dear. And I would smile, oh, I would smile and say, take my hand. 
there's a new treatment that may kill cancer with no chemo, no radiation, no side effects. The Ora Lee Smith Cancer Research Foundation has laser and nanotechnology that has eliminated tumors in mice in 15 days. Let's move beyond hope, beyond research, and start saving lives at oralee.org. We can make human cancer treatment accessible, effective, affordable. Donate today to help move this treatment to human trials and FDA approval at oralee.org. Studio One World Advantage Network. And now you can take us on the go and listen by downloading our app in either the Google, iTunes, or Blackberry stores. Don't have a smartphone or tablet? Then dial 401-283-6653 and listen to the station free. So what are you waiting for? Download our app now. No, right now. Four hours, seven days. 
away. 